You're listening to the Forest Hill Parenting Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Forest Hill Parenting Podcast, where we want to inspire parents to make faith in Jesus the priority of their families. Thanks so much for joining us and listening in. My name is Todd Lesher. I'm always so grateful to have you listening in on what we're doing on the podcast. Today, we're talking about despair in kids and adolescents with Will Hutcherson. Will is a communicator and youth advocate. He speaks to thousands of teens and adults and audiences around the world. In his school assembly presentation, Will shares a message of hope with the goal of drastically reducing the suicide rates of teens in America. He also trains teachers, parents, and youth workers tools to help navigate the problems facing today's youth. Will's work seeks to reduce bullying, prevent suicide, and inspire hope. Will, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners and then jump into the background of the story behind the Leadership Collective. Yeah, so uh, I live in South Florida. So I live in sunny South Florida. I have a wife and three kids. I have a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a three-year-old. So I'm a parent myself. Mm -hmm. And Although I don't have teenagers, sometimes I feel like I have, uh, at least I can understand what it's like having a teenager. My, right. my three-year-old acts like a teenager <laughs> at times. Um, so, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that's, that's kind of my family and my background. And, um, and the Youth Leadership Collective started uh, in 2018, really, because of a need that I kept on seeing mm. and a concern that... Um, I was seen as a next gen pastor, as a student pastor. Um, over you know the course of a few years, I started to notice that more and more teenagers were disconnecting, mm-hmm. and um, and it seemed that challenges that they were facing in years past were now challenges that were just kind of stopping them dead in their tracks, and it was making it where it was hard for them to overcome. In in some ways, I I would like to. You know the way I frame it is that there was the, this reduced um, resiliency mm. to overcome challenges. As as I you know I started to see that I you know started to become concerned. Um, started to talk to parents and many parents you know became uh, you know worried about their kids and you know the depression that they were facing and their despair. Or, you know, the anxiety, there was just this, it seemed like there was, you know, this increase of mm-hmm. all of these things. And as a pastor, I, I didn't really know what to do other than, you know, obviously prayer is a powerful tool that we have, but parents were asking me for practical things, practical tools, you know, and asking them, like, what can I do? Like, I, you know, I know I need to pray for my kid, but is there anything practically I can do? Yeah. And the only tool I had was, you know, well, I mean, we could, you know, get them connected to our small group, which is good, you know, um, keep them here, you know, that they're hearing, you know, God's word, like that's good and counseling, you know, which all of those things were really good, but in many ways it felt incomplete. And so, um, I, I really, you know, became challenged with this. There's got to be some solutions out there. And so the Youth Leadership Collective started uh, really out of, as a, a, a passion to help meet the needs of this generation. And um, as I started to look even beyond the walls of the church, I started to see that schools were in mm-hmm. desperate need as well. 
And so we started the Youth Leadership Collective to engage schools, yeah. to help schools, to come alongside schools, to partner with parents and educators to help heal despair in teens. And um, so the way that we did that is we got a group of counselors and mental health counselors. Um, we got uh, educators and communicators together in a room and we started asking the questions, well, what, what tools do we have available and what can we do to help partner with schools and parents and families and churches to help heal kids. And so that's, uh, that's where the Youth Leadership Collective started. That's how it started. And since 2018, we've been traveling all around the country in schools and churches and just sharing a message of hope and sharing practical tools on healing despair. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, thank you for taking that work seriously and being intentional with it. It, what was 2019 like if you could sum it up you know was it a whirlwind was it you did it you know blow your expectations away what was the last year like as you rolled this out and started to meet with schools and churches what has that experience been like you know it was um yeah a great question um if i could sum up the entire year i would say just uh how much of a need uh, i was surprised in 2019 how much of a need there was um i it surprised me every time i went to a school mm-hmm. how hungry uh students were for hope just simple messages of hope you know when we walk into a public school we can't you know share you know jesus we yeah. can't you know share scriptures um but we shared simple truths and we shared hope and we shared about purpose and love and and I think in 2019, the thing that shocked me the most was just how hungry they were for things that um, kids in our churches probably hear every week. Sure. You know. Yeah. And and I would say the other thing that surprised me was, you know, how hungry parents were. Like every parent is scared. You know. Yeah. Every parent's scared that one day their kid's gonna, you know, drop a bomb on them about anxiety, depression, or suicidal thoughts. Right. And you know, every parent is asking the question, what can I do against this invisible enemy? And, you know, and in, in, in other enemies that we have, you know, yeah. coming against our kids, like we can, we can do things, you know, it's like, oh, bad influences. Okay, we can, we can shape that. Like, oh, okay, uh, you know, bad behavior, we can shape that we can reduce certain things. But when it comes to depression and suicide, and despair like parents often feel powerless mm-hmm. and helpless and unsure of what they can actually do to help their kid but what i know about every parent is every parent loves their kid mm-hmm. and every parent wants to help their kid especially when they're in a dark place yeah absolutely well thanks for your bravery and the work of your colleagues and teammates for bringing hope to the hopeless and light in the darkness it is so encouraging to hear and for our listeners because We've got a wide range of parents who are listening in, and I imagine that some of their kids have been there, are there, will be there one day. So let's just start with despair. Can you help our listeners understand what despair is from your vantage point and how it's affecting kids and teenagers today? Yeah, there's a good reason why uh, I use the word despair, because um, as I talk to counselors and mental health professionals, what I found was that the vast majority of people are self-diagnosing themselves with depression. Mm. And although depression is is something, most of the time when we feel feelings of, uh, you know, sadness or 
anxiety, we automatically kind of like self-diagnose ourselves with depression or parents will say, oh, my kid's depressed. As I've talked to counselors, most counselors have told me that people come to them with this self-diagnosis of depression and the majority of them are wrong, Mm -hmm. that it's not truly clinical depression. Now, clinical depression is real and um, we need a wraparound approach to help those who are facing clinical depression. But what I would say that every kid and every adult has experienced or will experience at some point is uh, kind of, you know, another word of this is situational depression or, you know, despair, that there are moments where we just feel despair. We feel a sense of hopelessness or we feel a sense of, uh, I don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. I'm not sure that tomorrow is going to be any different. Hmm. And that really is the the number one problem. In fact, uh, oftentimes we think depression is what causes suicide, um, but actually 50% of those who attempt are complete suicide don't have clinical depression. So it's really despair. Despair is the common denominator that leads somebody to a place to want to end their life. Yeah. Um, so, so despair, what, when you break that down and you kind of ask the question, well, then what does despair do to the brain? Mm-hmm. Um, I like to think of it, you know, to put it simply, that your brain is made up of two parts, that you have your right side of your brain and your left side of your brain. Your right side is your emotional processing and your left side is your logical processing. And what despair really does is it kind of separates those two sides Mm -hmm. where you have all of this emotional energy that kind of builds up and your logical processing decreases, you know, to use a psychological term, you know, that psychologists would say is uh, an amygdala hijack Mm -hmm. where the two sides don't connect Um, a lot of blood flow changes it changes to the emotional side of the brain and you kind of go into this fight or flight mode yeah um high cortisol levels high stress levels and can lead somebody to a place of despair so when when you have this despair taking place another way of thinking about it is almost like a dispairing like think of the two sides like dispaired from each other yeah um that they're no longer connecting and what this does is it really creates an emotional detachment and this i think is the the cornerstone of despair Hmm. um because this is a very difficult thing that somebody can go through and it's it's one of the hardest um things to overcome because many people feel so alone in their emotions Uh, The number one thing that people in despair feel is that I'm the only one that feels this way, that nobody else understands what I'm going through and nobody can help me. Mm. Um, You know, one theologian put it as, you know, despair is like the dark night of the soul. Mm -hmm. And and it really is what's taking place on a biology level is that the the two sides are just separated, that they're dispaired from one another. Yeah. And um, the, the hope in this, though, and what we found is, yes, despair separates the two sides and it can feel so lonely and it can feel like it'll always be this way. But the cool thing is, is that research shows us that through love and empathy, hmm. we can actually heal the brain and bring the two sides back together. Yeah. When you look at another psychological principle um, called attachment theory, is that through attachment, through healthy attachment, with caring adults and specifically parents, 
we can heal the brain, bring the two sides back together and ultimately decrease despair. Another hormone called oxytocin kind of comes into play and reroutes the brain, helps exhaust emotion and uh, bring the two sides back together. And ultimately when a kid, a teenager or an individual is taking that emotional energy and putting it into logical processing, i.e. words, um, the feelings of despair decrease. Right, yeah. Well. Well, you had me at brain science, so I'm locked in <laughs> with <laughs> with this here. Um, and I would love for you to start wading into those practical waters. Um, for someone who's not really interested in the brain science of things, how do parents recognize despair? You went inside, so what does despair look like on the outside um, in the lives of their kids and students? Well, you know, the good thing about despair you know, in, in, in the terms of like recognizing it is everyone can recognize it because everyone's experienced yeah, it. At definitely. some point in your life, you've experienced the emotion of sadness and despair or feeling like you just have one of those blue days, right? Mm -hmm. um, but when you start to see blue days over and over and over again, or you hear a kid when you ask them how they feel and they say, I don't know, or I just feel numb that that tells you that you have an individual that's having a hard time processing emotion i would say that's the first sign that you might have okay. some despair taking place um and honestly the symptoms of depression you know sometimes you can see a few of those symptoms of depression but not all of them one of the things i, I try to help every teacher parent and caring adult small group leader understand is you don't have to diagnose your kid with depression to help your kid. Hmm. You don't have to figure out if they have clinical depression or not. Let the counselors do that. But what you can recognize is, hey, there's something going on here. My yeah. kid's feeling some despair. They're feeling some feelings of sadness and stuckness and hopelessness. Um, very practically, though, some symptoms of depression that I think could also correlate uh, into despair is feelings of sadness or hopelessness, yep. um, that they're irritable, they're angry, they're hostile, uh, you know, just a frequent crying even or withdrawing from friends or family, yeah. uh, loss of interest in activities that they used to be, you know, into poor, for, uh, you know, school performance, um, changing in eating or sleeping habits, all of those things can start to show you and, and help cue you in on okay, they're, they might be in a, a place of despair where those two sides are separated. Mm, that's good. The thing that comes to mind for my own personal story of when I reflect back on moments and seasons of despair, for me, it was like excessive discouragement. I just could not rise mm. above just being discouraged all the time. I couldn't get ahead and everything seemed piled upon me. And so that's, that for me, and I don't know if that's that's right on, but the logical stamina just decreased and the emotional being emotionally overwhelmed in the sense of discouragement just made it really difficult to to get beyond that. And so when you describe like blue days or just being excessively overwhelmed, that's kind of what my looking back on my kind of teenage time frame of those moments that I'm able to relate to a little bit myself. Yeah, and it can come out in sadness uh, or it can come out in anger, mm -hmm. you know, uh, sometimes in despair because you have all that emotion, like I said, built up. And uh, another way I like to think about this is like, imagine you take a deep breath and you can't breathe out. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's what's happening in the brains of a teenager that is in despair. Like they have all this emotional energy and they have no idea how to exhale it. Yep. And and so that could be very frustrating. It can be very angry. Um, you know, ang- you know, create feelings of anger rather. And um and it can also, you know, make a kid feel very sad or feel stuck or feel like I'm always going to feel this way. Yep. And to connect back to what you mentioned that we're able to recognize despair because we've all felt it. When you use that analogy of taking a deep breath of air and not being able to exhale, we all can relate with a moment like that in one way or another. So that's really helpful. Now, when you talk about attachment science and attachment theory, how can we, and how, whether it's parents or youth leaders, uh, teachers, however you address this, how can we begin to attune to our kids in a way that combats despair? Yeah, so there are six tools that I like to teach okay. to parents that just help them to attune. And it's funny you use the word attune because I call them attune tools. Okay. And, um, and, and if you take that word attune, A-T-T-U-N-E, there are six tools that I use that word, that acronym, to help parents to connect with their kid, um, especially when they're feeling uh, despair. And I would say the goal of this, so what's the goal? The goal is to help every kid, every teenager to feel felt. Mm. Because when you feel felt, you exhaust emotion. When you feel felt, you bring the two sides back together. And, and again, every one of us can relate with this. There are people in our life where we walk away from them and they're like, you know, we say things like, man, that guy just gets me mm-hmm. or they get me. They, they feel me, right? What you're ultimately saying is you feel felt. Like yeah. you feel like they feel your emotion. They understand you. It's not just sympathy. It's it's deeper than that. Like there's there's a connection there. Uh, that's what attunement is. And every adult can do this for a kid. But parents are especially talented at attuning because uh, they have a special connection with their kids. So I like to think of parents as kind of the superheroes mm-hmm. of attunement. Yeah. So here are the the six tools. I'll give you the first one. It's a uh, the first you know, a in the, in the word attune is to attend Mm. and to attend means to ultimately just be present to pay attention or take deep notice, um, of what's going on. You know, you might, you know, be asking like, like you asked, you know, how do I see these things? How do Mm. I know when my kids, you know, facing, uh, despair and really we have to attend, we have to, to, to watch and see what might be happening or what's going on deeper in our kid's life. And I gave you some of those symptoms to look out for. Um, but we got to stay on top of it. You know, I think of one dad who, when he found out his, his son was facing despair and suicidal thoughts, you know, he started to, uh, you know, just do his homework while his son was doing his homework, he would bring his laptop into his, his son's bedroom and do his work with him. Hmm. Like, in other words, his, his goal was, Hey, if this is the way you feel, I just want you to know, you're not alone. Yep. And I can't imagine you being alone while you feel this way. And he was just physically present. Yeah. And uh, so to attend really means to just stay on top of it, to um, to take deep notice, to pay attention mm. and um, and ultimately to get help. I would say, you know, if you have a kid who is communicating that they're having suicidal thoughts, um, you know, I would say the first thing is, you know, to, to stay calm. Mm. Um, it's very easy to say, but very hard to do, especially when it's your kid. Right. Um, 
But here's what I, 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 you know, I encourage every parent, every caring adult. If your kid says to you, well, I just don't want to live anymore. Our knee jerk reaction is to um, start to tell them all the reasons why they shouldn't feel that way. Yeah. Right. Our knee jerk reaction is to say, well, you have so much to live for and your life is good. And you have so many people that love you. You know, you have hope and dreams. And what about, you know, the college, blah, blah, blah. The problem with this is out of our good intention of talking them out of how they are feeling is that we unintentionally uh, kind of reinforce their feelings, mm. especially their feelings of guilt. You know, so it, it kind of, you know, they hear us say, you have so much to live for. And then they go, see, I am broken. Mm. I shouldn't be feeling this way. Yeah, I, I'm so stupid. I can't believe this. You know, people would just be better off without me. Here I am putting my mom, my dad through this, you know. So it, it actually works against our intention. Mm. So anytime you have a kid, you know, that's going through suicidal thoughts or going through a bout of despair, stay calm. And the best thing to respond and to say is that I love you to mirror their emotions, you know, to, um, offer empathy and say, you know, I can see that you're really hurting right now. And I really, really hate that you're hurting, mm. right? That's empathy. Yeah. I can see that you're really scared right now. And I really, it's, it saddens me to see that you're scared. I hate that you're scared or, or whatever it is, but, but to slow down, mirror their emotions, offer empathy, and then express in, you know, your care and your love for them. Mm. Um, that's the best, the best response in those moments. Yep. Um, I like to say to meet emotion with emotion. Mm. And uh, the second thing is to get help. You know, if you have a kid that's struggling with, with uh, suicidal thoughts, don't try to, to solve that problem alone. Yep. Um, a counselor can help, you know, guide this. You know, sometimes parents think, well, they're just saying it for attention. Um, and that might be true. However, you don't really know, one. And two, even if it is just for attention, there's an underlying need that still has to be met. And so we can't, you know, just shrug it off as, you know, attention seeking. We really need to get help and kind of dig down deeper into what may be going on and specifically why they can't exhaust emotion. And then the third thing is just be present, you know, to stay on top of it. Yeah. And I shared about the dad who, you know, changed where he was doing his work and started to do his work with, you know, with his son doing homework right. in their bedroom. So um, to show up is to show that you care. Hmm. And so attend is is the first one. The next one is to talk. Uh, the next uh, word, so the T is yep. talk. And the goal of this isn't as much for you to talk, but to get them to talk. This goes back to what I was saying about exhausting the emotion. Yeah. You, in order to shift that emotional energy from the right side of the brain to the left side of the brain, you have to verbalize it. You have to talk it. This is why talk therapy is so powerful. This is why small groups are so powerful mm -hmm. because we're able to exhaust the emotion and to get it out. Some words that I might use with uh, teenagers, um, I, I like to use, you know, are you lonely? Do you feel hurt? Do you feel angry? Do you feel embarrassed, ashamed, alone, afraid? Those are all words that, um, you know, just kind of cue them to put uh, what they're feeling into actual words. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, they might say, I don't know. I feel all of them. Mm. Uh, and what I, I often tell parents is just just respond with, well, well, pick one and tell me, about <laughs> it, you know, yeah, just pick one. 
because the goal again is to just get them to talk and to exhale the emotion and for us to focus on listening to focus on listening with feeling associated with that now this is not easy so i'm an entj on the myers-briggs i'm an enneagram seven uh on the enneagram side of things so i don't love talking about feelings and i'm a guy that just doesn't love talking about feelings so in terms of my natural makeup i'd rather just talk about the principle i'd rather just talk about the problem i'd rather just stay in happy feelings you know as an enneagram seven i'm like i don't want to talk about negative things. I want to keep on going and let's talk about positive things. Right. So my natural knee jerk is to honestly just go to logical processing and, you know, try to, to lighten when somebody is emotionally exhausting. So I have to really work on this to listen deeply and to, um, focus on feeling and say things like, you know, I can see that you're really hurt right now. Tell me about it and just let them talk. Again, the goal is to get them to talk, to exhaust that emotion, and for us to just simply listen. And uh, when we do, like I said, it 100% works. As kids exhaust emotion, you're bringing those two sides back together, and you're helping them to process what they're feeling. Yeah, that's really good. Um, The next T is tone. You know, what we say matters, but how we say it matters mm-hmm. even more. Yeah. And, you know, I would say tone and body language. You know, there's a big difference between, you know, saying love you as you walk out the door, you know, or, you know, I love you, you know, yeah. if you're frustrated <laughs> and slam the door, you know, um, and, and looking somebody in the eye and saying, I love you. Mm-hmm right? Yeah. You know, to slow down, to soften that. So your tone really matters. Here's the problem with tone is oftentimes parents, caring adults, we're moving a hundred miles per hour, just as much as our kids are moving a hundred miles per hour. And we're stressed out ourselves. So when our kids start going through despair, it's like, we don't have any more room in our life to deal with their despair. So the stress compounds, you know, their despair triggers us. And all of a sudden we start to spiral out. So what I like to remind parents with this, this attuned tool of tone is that you're not going to be able to have the right tone and respond to your kid if you're not taking care of you. Mm -hmm. And if you're not aware of your own stress levels and not aware of, um, your own, you know, mental health and emotional health. So to have the right tone, we have to slow down. Mm. You know, this looks like uh, maybe going on a walk, you know, getting a journal, starting to journal out some things yourself, you know, listening to worship music or instrumental music, you know, just taking time to just process yourself mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, going to counseling. You know, oftentimes we think when my kid's in despair, they need to go to counseling, but it's actually, it might be better for you to start, um, for you to go to counseling. Because if you do and you take care of you, you're going to be able to help them. I I told one parent recently, I said, you have to put your oxygen mask on first, Mm. right? Just like when we go on an airplane, they always tell us, put on your oxygen mask before you help somebody else. And uh, that is very, very true when it comes to helping our kids when they're facing despair or depression or anxiety. We have to put on our oxygen mask first. Um, That's the best thing we could do for our kid is to uh, to get healthy, to watch our tone and be aware of not just what we're saying, but how we're saying it. Yep. 
Yeah, I've heard that um, parents need to make sense of their past to change how they parent in the present and into the future. So kind of along the lines of making sense of what's going on inside is such a big deal for how they are present with their children, how they allow space for them to talk. So that is such a big point. I want to just take a moment to punctuate that. So thank you for encouraging our parents to work on themselves as well as they they uh, are present and care for their kids. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, uh, I'm i going to botch this uh, quote, but I just recently heard it. Um, so I'm going to do my best because uh, I just heard it last week. But I heard somebody say, you know, we can either heal people from our past or we can wound them from our childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And, you know, and, and what I think that, you know, ultimately speaks to is to what you said, like we can we almost have to go back. And from our experience, we can help people to heal. Yep. Or if we don't deal with it, we'll end up wounding people totally um, because of our past. Yep. So that's good. the The next tool is the U, which is unplug. Um, this is uh, honestly just helping create boundaries uh, for kids um, and teenagers when it comes to electronics. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the dangers for us as a society is that uh, here we are facing this increased amount of despair. Suicide rates have you know, doubled in teenagers in the last 10 years. And the correlation is really social media and smartphones. And I'm not going to say that uh, you know, the despair increase, the anxiety increase, and the suicide increase is because of technology. Um, because I don't believe it is. I mean, I think this trend is, you know, for many reasons. But I will say that screens and technology have not helped mm. us very much. And the reason why is because the more time that we spend um, connecting in a digital space, the less time that we're connecting in a physical space. And our brains don't really know the difference. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I'm texting my friend. But what your brain knows is like, is my friend right in front of me, mm-hmm. right? Do I feel their their presence? Do I see them, right? So we, we have to unplug in order to create conversations. Um, research has identified a common set of factors that tend to predispose children to um, positive outcomes in the face of significant adversary. And the number one positive outcome the number one factor that creates positive outcomes rather that building the resiliency is a caring adult in their life. Mm. And so to unplug and to make sure that we're frequently connecting with our kids and that they know that there is somebody that cares about them, that is for them, then, um, you know, we can win. I'll give you a couple stats with kind of what's happening, uh, right now. You know, the number of teens who get together daily with friends, has dropped 40% since 2000. Hmm. Um, As a result of that, teenagers are less likely to engage in at-risk behavior. Mm -hmm. So there's actually a silver lining to all of this. Sure. Um, uh, Premarital sex, sexual activity is actually down since 1990. Um, And at-risk behavior is lower. Drug abuse ultimately is actually lower since the early 90s, which, so again, those are positive things. Um, But despair and suicide are up. Yeah. Uh, preteens and teenagers tend to be more comfortable in their bedroom than at a car or at a party. Um, 
increased feelings of loneliness have been associated with seeing friends posts on social media. Um, 48% more girls said that they felt left out in 2015 than in 2010. Hmm. Um, heavy social media users increased their risk of depression by 27%. And eighth graders who spend 10 or more hours per week on screens are 56% more likely to say that they are unhappy than those who use it less. Man. So screens are definitely yeah. um, affecting the overall behavior and mental health of our teenagers and our ki kids. And so what this looks like for us as parents is we have to help them to create boundaries. You know, we've had smartphones for about 10 years. We've had cars for about 100 years. So think about when cars first came out. There were no seatbelts, there were no anti-lock brakes, there were no airbags. Cars were dangerous, mm -hmm. um, but they're still great. Like, cars are amazing innovations. I would not want a world without cars, right? <laughs> yeah. um, You'd be back the on the Oregon way, Trail. Smartphones, <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. I'm like, it would take us a very long time to get anywhere. Um, but they're dangerous things. And yeah. in the same way, smartphones are great and they can help us tremendously, but they're also dangerous and we have to create some safety me mechanisms. But we just, we haven't yet because we've only had them for about 10 years, right? So we as parents have to start queuing in on, okay, well, there's some things that need to be in place. Like we need some, we need the seatbelt version of hmm. smartphones. What does that look like? What, what does it look like to teach my kid boundaries. And so a couple of practicals um, I do to just help parents guide their kids in creating unplugged time and ultimately increase face-to-face -face connection is to create a no phone zone in your house. This could be um, a time period, you know, so it's like this time to this time, there's no phones, no screens. Like this is just our priority to connect. It could be a room. Um, maybe there's a space in your house where it's like, this is our our conversation room, mm -hmm. you know, and if anyone's just sitting in that room, it means they're open for conversation, you know? Um, so whatever that looks like, you know, I think if you ask your kids and you get your kids on board, I mean, I, what I've found is that a lot of teenagers are, they're kind of looking for boundaries in, in some ways. I know that sounds crazy, but um, they want to be directed in some way yeah. through uh, creating boundaries with their phones. Yeah. You could also, you know, set boundaries for how your family interacts with technology. Um, you know, like I said, you know, at the dinner table, you know, uh, you could use tools like Bark.us where it kind of monitors what your kids are doing um, to just make sure that they're using the internet and social media in the right way. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, whatever it looks like with unplugging, just any any step is a great step. Mm -hmm. um, but just helping teach our kids, you know, how to unplug and create boundaries will ultimately increase conversations. And, uh, and that is a win. Yeah. And that's the, that's the point of emphasis, right? Where we're unplugging to connect relationally and interpersonally in a physical space together. It's not just yes. less phones, right? Less screens. It's more personal, interpersonal, interaction with a human being <laughs> right yeah. there in the room. You know, I, uh, I, I read recently in a book called conversation, uh, reclaiming conversations, 
is that research shows us that those who use social media the most have the most difficulty reading human emotions, mm. including their yeah. own. Yeah. But the same re research shows us that face-to-face -face conversations lead to great self-esteem and an improved ability to deal with others. Yes. So again, conversations cure. So, you know, if we want to help our kids to identify their own emotions and others, you know, to increase empathy, then we have to increase face-to-face -face conversations. Yeah. I read a very similar thing in a, a, book, a book called Raising Secure Children um, that said mm. that the key to self-esteem and healthy self-concept is not telling a child that they're better or superior or just going on and on how, how great they are. It's about accepting them for who they are. And that's just a simple yeah. concept right there of what you're saying. And that can happen yeah. just in the simple context of being together at, at a meal or in the car, but being present to one another. So we're, we're like, we're talking about the most simple things that we seem to have forgotten in the digital age. But when we reclaim these, we reclaim healthy relationships. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So the last two tools in the Attune tool um, kind of toolkit are probably my two favorites. So the, the, the next one is notice. So the N in Attune is notice. And this is notice the emotion. Mm. And this is why it's my favorite, because honestly, as a parent, I probably failed at this one the most. And so this tool has helped me the most. Um, you have to meet right brain with right brain, left brain with left brain. Yeah. So here's the, you know, the example I'll give you. My kid comes home from school, you know, and he's just distraught. He's crying. He's upset because he failed his test. And you know, I just, I just failed my test. I can't believe it. That teacher is so mean, right? So it's blaming the teacher. Um, as a parent, what I want to do is I want to say, well, buddy, you know, you learned your lesson because <laughs> yesterday I was telling you to go study. <laughs> yesterday right. I told you to do your homework. You kept telling me you would, but you didn't. You wanted to play Xbox. You wanted blah, 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 right? And the, this happens, I mean, how many times does this happen, right? Um, our knee-jerk reaction as a parent is to immediately go logical yep. and to start proving the point or teaching the principle. The problem is, is when our kids are emotionally activated and we come at them with logic, we completely dismiss the emotion and we miss them, hmm. right? Because what they conclude is, see, you don't, you don't even get me. Mm -hmm. Like you don't, you're not even recognizing what I'm feeling. You don't care what I feel. Right. And, and we just miss them. We kind of fly by them. So what I like to tell parents is first meet right brain with right brain, notice the emotion and then meet them right there. So what does that look like? It looks like your kid comes home from school. They're upset because they failed their test and you say, Oh, buddy, I am so sorry that you failed your test. You must feel really disappointed right mm. now. Yeah, I'm disappointed and I'm mad. I can't believe that teacher, blah, blah, blah. Tell me about it. Sit down. Come on, come on. Sit down. Tell me about it. And you just, you, you recognize the emotion and you match the emotion. Now, in the back of your head, you're thinking, this is so stupid. Totally. I know yep. why you failed your test. You don't know why you failed your <laughs> test, but I'm going to, you know, right? Right. You're thinking all yep. the logical thoughts but you can't go there right away. You have to let them exhaust the emotion and meet the emotion, like meet them with empathy. That's not being fake or insincere. It's being where you're, you're willing to meet them right where they are and right where they are in that moment yes. is they just need to be heard. Yep. 
right? After they've exhausted the emotion, then come around when they've kind of flipped back over to to normal from emotion to, to logical, then you can kind of say, hey, do you think there's anything, you know, you could do to help influence your grade next time? Or are there any steps you could take to, you know, help improve your next test score, right? I mean, you could ask some questions or even offer some insights of, hey, I, you know, just wanted to share, you know, I hate that you failed your test and I'm really sad that you failed. But, you know, yesterday I, I mentioned that, you know, you had to do your homework, you had to study and you didn't necessarily want to prioritize that. Is there another way that I can help you with this or putting a reminder in your phone, whatever it might be, right? So to come around, bring the logical process um, on the back end would definitely be the, the more um, more fruitful way of doing it. Yeah, so that's really notice helpful. the emotion. When we notice the emotion, it really helps um, make a connection. And then the last tool is eye contact. Um, this is uh, probably my favorite because eye contact and appropriate physical touch can have profound effects on kids when they're in despair. And the reason why it goes back to um, what I mentioned about attachment theory, the brain remembers early attachment. And especially if they have a secure attachment with their, with their, their, their mom or their dad, eye contact and appropriate physical touch can kind of rewire the brain back to those places of safety and bring them to a place where they feel that, okay, I'm okay, I'm safe, I'm in a good place. Um, sometimes it looks like when your kid's in an emotionally heightened place, sometimes it looks like just grabbing them and just hugging them. Mm. And, um, and as much as they might say, this is stupid, let go of me, just say, just let me hug you for a mm. minute, mm. right? Like that hug will all of a sudden just decrease despair. Um, uh, appropriate physical touch, you know, looks like for a parent even, like grabbing the side of their face next to their temples and rubbing them. And the reason why is because when when you were a baby, that's what you did, right? Mm -hmm. When they were a baby, they, you, you grabbed the side of their face, you held their face, you, mm -hmm. you looked them in the eye, right? All of that, they remember. Deep down, they remember. And those, um, those appropriate physical touches and that eye contact can help decrease despair. Um, I'll give you an example of this. I was working with a young adult who was dealing with a lot of anxiety and um, just a lot of like despair, even struggling with, with suicidal thoughts. And uh, I was talking with her and her mom. And in the course of, of, of talking with them, you know, the mom was like, well, what else can I do? And I said, you know, this is going to sound so silly and so simple. But one of the things you can do is just spend two minutes a day staring your daughter in the eye holding her hands and affirming her with, with positive words and love. And I said, let me show you. And so the, the young adult and the mom, I had them face each other. They grabbed each other's hands and I had them look each other in the eyes for two minutes. Now, at first the teenager was kind of like tense, like shoulders yeah. were crouched up, you know, even said like, this is so dumb and weird, you know? And I said, I know it's weird, but just, just try it for two minutes. And then that's all like, that's all I want you to do. And so they, you know, she finally agreed and, and the mom, you know, just began to speak, you know, I love you and I believe that you are blah, blah, blah. Right. And over the course of 30 seconds, the girl's shoulders kind of loosened over the course of a minute, her face kind of 
became more um, relaxed. And over the course of two minutes, her entire body language changed. And when I asked her how she felt after the, those two minutes, she just said, I feel good. Like the anxiety kind of decreased in that moment. And in some ways, her mom kind of hacked the brain, you know, like hacked the despair and got yeah. around it and reconnected with her daughter um, in a way that honestly she connected with her when she was young. And so eye contact has the ability to create feelings of safety um, and appropriate physical touch probably better than anything. Mm. And so it's it's one of my favorite tools uh, because of that reason. Yeah. Well, this has been I mean, really incredible. And you have been super generous to take us through those six points. And I, w I would love for you to help parents connect, you know, just from your experience as a pastor and next gen leader, how do parents connect the good news of the gospel in a way that addresses despair? And um, because at the end of the day, what you just described is what Jesus does for us in a lot of ways. Um, but I would love to hear it from your perspective. Yeah, I think, I think, you know, the greatest message Jesus gives us and, and the, the thing that we can stand on because of him is that there's always hope. Hmm. That no matter what we're facing, no matter how dark it feels today, that tomorrow can be different. And that there is always hope. And hope has a name. His name is Jesus. Yeah. And as long as he's in it, there's hope. And I would say the second thing is that when you look at the life of Jesus and you look at the way that he interacted with people, you can see a God who uh, doesn't judge us for our emotions, but a God mm -hmm. who empathizes with our emotions, yeah. a God who weeps when we weep, um, a God who feels hurt when we're hurt, um, but a God that also says, hey, there's hope. That yes, you're hurting today, but there's hope. Yeah. There's always hope. And you're not going to always feel this way. And it's not always going to be this way. There is hope, especially when he's in it. Mm. And I I just read, uh, I think it's John 11, the story of Lazarus and Jesus' interaction mm -hmm. with um, Mary and Martha. And I can see all six of those, even the moment when Jesus uh, turned off his cell phone there and so we could talk to Mary and Martha you know but <laughs> but i mean that's that's what he embodied and that's the encouragement yeah. like i hope par parents can hear what you just said because the truth is parents that you are good news for your kids especially when you take yeah. this posture that will just laid out well will thank you so much how can parents learn more about your work with um, the youth leadership collective yeah, so you can go to youthleadershipcollective.com um, or you can go to willhutch.com. Both of them kind of link up together and uh, find out more. And um, good news, too, is we have a book that will be published through Orange okay. um, come May. So nice. this, all of this content will be in a, a written form so that parents can connect with that and read more about how they can attune with their kids. That's great. Is it too early to say that the book will be available at Orange Tour when uh, y'all are in town in October? You know, I, it may be too early to say, but I'm pretty sure it will be. So uh, the goal is for it to be published by Orange Conference, which is yep. at the end of April. Okay, So fantastic. Well, we'll keep our eyes out for it when Orange Tour is at Forest Hill uh, later on this year. Well, Will, thanks so much. Uh, let me say a final prayer as we wrap up our time together. 
Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this good news that in a lot of ways parents can embody and kind of represents the presence of God, the healing presence of God in the lives of their children. And so I pray that you would give parents the grace of these six really practical ways to help repair the the despairing of the brain and the despair that our kids and teenagers face throughout life. So give us what we need to be available for you to work through us in the lives of our children. Thank thank you for Will, uh, for uh, his time with us, and continue to bless and expand his work uh, to more opportunities and venues to share this message of hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Parent on parents, you got this. Thanks for joining us for the Forest Hill Parenting Podcast, where we want to inspire parents to make faith in Jesus the priority in their families. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you showed your support by sharing, subscribing, and rating this podcast on iTunes. To watch our services live or find the campus nearest you, visit foresthill.org.